CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, As we start the day today, I think it is fair to say that our understanding of where the country, where our state, where our communities here in Georgia stand with the coronavirus is confused. We now got um, Democratic governors in any number of states who seem to have created a, a, a coordinated campaign to all announce they are removing mask mandates for uh, 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 their, their uh, residents. Uh, at the same time, CDC is saying it is too early to take that kind of action. The White House is in kind of a bind over this, uh, not quite sure which way uh, to go. There's no question the Omicron variant is um, certainly not uh, continuing in the surge state it had been in. But at the same time, I was really struck by a remarkable statistic. Um, we had the, the world had 300 million cases of coronavirus one month ago. In one month, that number drew, grew to 400 million. And so I think there's um, real uncertainty about where we all stand with the virus right now and the mitigation techniques we need to take to deal with it. And, and I say that because the first story I want to talk about today has to do with Governor Kemp's latest uh, uh, statement about how he wants school children to deal with the virus. We'll talk about that after we introduce our Thursday panel. Uh, my partner on the Thursday show is the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley. Kevin, I'm glad you're with us today. How are you? Uh, good morning, Bill. It's good to be with you. It's Super Bowl week, and we have a great Super Bowl with lots of Georgia connections in it, as you know. So um, looking forward to that and looking forward to the show today. Uh, Kevin, prediction. These two teams guarantee one of the lowest-rated Super Bowls in uh, uh, recent history, yes? <laughs> I don't want to predict ratings. That's why I work in the newspaper oh, world where we don't worry about ratings. We just worry about seeking okay. the truth, Bill. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for being here, Kevin Riley. Adam Van Brimmer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. You, you're used to offering your opinion. Uh, Adam, what do you think? Is anybody going to be watching this game between two teams that simply have never generated a lot of excitement or behind their own cities? Well, as a native of central Ohio and a childhood fan of the Bungles, uh, I'm hoping that, that it draws very, very well. But, yes, the, between Cincinnati being in it and the L.A. Rams, and I think people in Los Angeles still aren't aware that they've got not just one team but two teams in their backyard, uh, is, you're probably right in terms of, of ratings. It's going to be low, but I think everybody's going to tune in for the commercials and the nachos and the chili and everything else. So that they got that going for them. Thank you for your opinion. Chuck Williams, WRBL-TV reporter, longtime uh, journalist in uh, Columbus, a, a legend in, uh, in the Columbus <laughs> uh, community and far beyond. Chuck, let me ask you a different question as we start. Do you agree with what I said at the top of the show, that right now 
there just seems to be enormous confusion about how we are supposed to behave uh, with the coronavirus continuing to be an issue, even if it's not surging the way it had been. I absolutely agree with that, Bill. But one quick thing on the Super Bowl. Everybody in Eufaula, Alabama will be watching because the general manager of the Los Angeles Rams is less need than Eufaula guy. So Eufaula, Alabama, the whole TV market will go there. But I agree with what you said about the mask because and the way to behave. And, and you see it in your own behavior. I mean, I'll walk in my office and I'm not sure, I mean, in a control room or some areas, you know, or if you're sitting really close to somebody, you'll put it on. But, you know, I usually try not to wear it if I can, but if it if that makes somebody uncomfortable, I'm immediately going to put one on. I'll leave one in my pocket. I mean, it's just, there is a lot of confusion and it, yeah. you know, yeah. and I think it's the next step of this pandemic we've been in for two years. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Maya Prabhu is joining us, uh, AJC reporter who has been spending her days and I assume some evenings down at the state capitol where she's been covering uh, the state senate as she's done for a number of years now. How are you? How are you holding up down there? Um, You know, the past week has, it's really kicked into gear. It's been very, very busy. Lots of floor debates and back to yesterday, I think there were like 20 meetings scheduled and it's, yeah, it's picking up and uh, it's about to be go time. Well, thank you so much, given how busy you are down there, for taking time to be with us today. And, and let's start with some legislative news. Kevin, uh, Governor Kemp announced yesterday that he is going to push for legislation that lets parents decide whether to send their kids to school in masks. Here's his quote. As some school systems continue to ignore the science, concerned parents and the well-being of students in the coming days, my office will be introducing legislation to give parents the final say on masking for their children. He says parents have the tools to understand what's best for their children. Uh, so, uh, Governor Kemp, uh, Kevin, he we don't have a mask mandate. We've never had a statewide mask mandate, of course, but some local districts continue to <clears throat> say that their people need to be wearing masks. Kevin? Yeah, I really noticed that ignore the science line uh, because, of course, there was a period certainly early in the pandemic where a lot of very uh, well-credentialed experts were saying that the governor, in fact, was the one ignoring the science early in the pandemic. But I think he's got an issue here that works for him in two ways, right? The the mass thing has been politicized, and for his conservative voters that he's got to attract in the primary, they love that issue. And now, as this pandemic has gone on and as politics has played out, we've seen parents, particularly in conservative areas, demanding not just to eliminate mask mandates, but to have a bigger say in what goes on in their schools. So this is sort of an obvious issue for him to jump on, especially as he heads toward this primary against David Perdue. Adam, uh, your mayor, Van Johnson, doesn't have authority over the school system in, uh, in your county, but he was the first mayor in the state when the pandemic began to issue a mask mandate. And uh, it'd be interesting to know how he feels about parents having the choice of whether students should be masked or not. Yes, and, and the school district here has been very proactive in terms of masks. Uh, we were a school district that was somewhat hesitant to go back to in-person classes, and it was a pretty staunch 
divide on the school board, and eventually this uh, majority prevailed with a lot of, you know, caveats in terms of math, and maths are required in school, and, you know, I think we were, the, the whole idea that there's an executive editor, there's an executive editor, there's an executive order that already exists that says you can't mandate maths in school, and they do it anyway, so I think Kemp can rattle his saber all he wants, and uh, but the but the truth is is it's not very enforceable on his end. I don't see a whole lot of parents. There have been some threats of lawsuits here, but there's nothing's really come of it. So I wouldn't imagine that whether it's Mayor Johnson or the superintendent of schools, uh, Ann Levette, or the school board president Joe Buck, I, I just don't see that getting any traction. Like a lot of things that are going on at the Capitol right now, it is all about politics. It is all about the primary. Maya, weigh in. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting approach. You know, I have a friend who's a teacher who um, in Marietta who, you know, is still wearing his mask at school, and and it is as you mentioned at the top a really confusing situation. Especially, you know, I'm just thinking about my experience in the Capitol. You know, it seems as though COVID doesn't exist anymore in the Capitol. Very few people are distancing lobbyists like to talk very close to you and aren't wearing masks. Masks aren't mandated in the Senate or any of the Senate committee rooms. Masks are mandated in the House. Um, but most people, you know, take them off and the speaker has to remind them to put them on. So it's just kind of pervasive, this um, this pushback against masks. And um, it's interesting the way that that Kemp has chosen this time to come out and kind of reinforce this idea that kids shouldn't be wearing masks in school anymore. Chuck, let me put this into a, <clears throat> excuse me, into a political context. We know that one of the, <clears throat> again, I apologize, one of the political stories that um, has gotten some traction this week was Stacey Abrams went to Decatur Elementary School. Uh, she took off, apparently she took off her mask. She was wearing a mask. When she went to speak to the students, she took her mask off. All the students were masked. And then she posed for a photograph, which got is where the traction came from, uh, maskless while the students behind her were all wearing masks. Okay, so she was condemned roundly by uh, Kemp, by David Perdue, by Republicans in general for being a hypocrite on this. Um, and she did, uh, she, she did, in fact, pull down the photograph on Twitter pretty quickly. But here's my question. If, if now Brian Kemp says he wants to let parents decide whether their children should wear masks or not, it seems to me that uh, somehow doesn't quite fit into this effort to uh, be so critical of Stacey Abrams for taking off a mask in classroom. I do. I don't think Republican primary voters are going to analyze that as deeply as you just did, Bill. But I mean, if, 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 but if you look at this, and one quick thing on Governor Kemp's proposal, I talked to a state senator, Republican state senator Randy Robertson from Harris County, and Randy was talking about he didn't think, and his word was bandwidth. I don't think we have the bandwidth to take on masks in schools as a statewide issue. He said, in my opinion, it's better left to local school boards and the parents with those boards. So I thought that was interesting coming from a very conservative, rural uh, Republican state senator. But, you know, when you go back to the Abrams mask photo, 
And I've been trying to think of a political social media gaffe that ranks up there with it. And it's hard to because, I mean, you know, maybe Purdue bailing out of that debate with Isoft and the way that all played out. But, you know, when you look at that photo, one being taken the way it was, and then getting posted to social media, it had to go through various levels of campaign of campaign protocol. I can't believe somebody didn't raise a question about that before it before it hit Twitter. I mean, it's just amazing to me. Kevin, Kevin, you're muted right now, or we don't hear you, Kevin. All right, we've we've lost Kevin's audio uh, for just a moment. Maya, uh, let me let's say that this is kind of a three way. Uh, shooting war here. We've got both Kemp and Purdue attacking Abrams over the mask situation. Uh, But now we've got the Purdue campaign attacking Kemp for announcing he's going to support legislation to let parents decide about masks. The quote is, Brian Kemp only does the right thing when we spell it out first. Why didn't Kemp stand up for parents' rights two years ago when this pandemic uh, began? Maya? Yeah, you know, definitely David Perdue is taking the opportunity to jump at at Kemp. But, you know, like has been said already, it's not something that's very enforceable. Kemp has already told local governments and schools that they can't uh, enforce mass mandates locally. And schools are schools and local governments are still making decisions to do what's best for them. So. Um, I don't know if disingenuous is the right word, but it's um, an interesting spin for for Purdue to try to use in this instance. Kevin, let me give you the last word on this now that you're back with us. So I think two two interesting things on this. The first is Stacey Abrams has typically been sort of a flawless campaigner. You know, she's been able to avoid uh, the unforced error. So uh, this might be a bad sign. And then second is Purdue and Kemp can't even agree on this mass thing. I mean, they, they used it to beat up each other, which is going to be the ongoing theme, right? It's that these two Republicans are just trying to hurt each other bad, and you really wonder how this is going to come out. Okay, um, let's move on to some other legislative uh, news. Uh, Maya, uh, yesterday the uh, Senate took another step, a step forward, in a measure that would outlaw the mailing of abortion pills to pregnant women in Georgia. Could you just give us a little information about what the context of that bill is? Sure. So um, during the pandemic, the Biden administration had loosened the regulations around receiving the abortion pill. So women who are pregnant up until about 10 weeks uh, can use a pill for medical abortion instead of having to go in and have surgery performed. Um, most women who uh, make the decision early on prefer to use this route. And so um, the Biden administration made it so that you no longer had to go into the doctor to be seen in person and receive the medicine in person. This way you could do a teledoc appointment and uh, speak with the doctor, get a prescription, and either go to your pharmacy and pick it up or have it mailed to you. In December, they made this kind of pandemic rule permanent. And so now 
Bruce Thompson here, who's running for labor commissioner, has taken up, uh, you know, legislation that would not allow that. It would not allow women in Georgia to receive abortion pills through the mail after going through a teledoc appointment. They would have to go into the doctor's office and have an ultrasound before they could be given um, an abortion pill in person. Um, so the context of this, Adam, uh, by the way, Bruce Thompson, uh, is his quote on why this bill is important to him, he said, we value the health and safety of each person in our state, especially the women that are facing the difficult decision of whether to terminate her pregnant, their pregnancies or not. It's, protected, it's intended to protect these women from reckless actions, essentially. So, Adam, the larger context of this is, you, you know, in an election year, uh, introducing another restriction on abortion is not typically even many Republicans, a David Ralston Republican, really wants to see introduced at the Capitol. Right. That's the interesting interesting part of all this, right, is because the Republicans have said they're going to wait here for the Supreme Court on the Mississippi case and then how that applies to the to the Georgia case, and that they don't necessarily want to do what a lot of people thought they might do and do a cut and paste uh, of the Texas bill. That, that the Supreme Court did not take up and went into effect. So this is, this is a, I guess, a way for them to, to score some campaign uh, points with, with the base in terms of abortion, while at the same time not making any kind of major changes to the fetal heartbeat bill. And basically, as, as I said earlier, I think everything that seems to be coming through the legislature right now is geared toward uh, the Republican base in the primary in May. And... I think Adam's right. I mean, this is a Republican base issue, and it, I mean, that's where it's going. I mean, this is an issue that plays well to primary voters on March, on May 24th, and that's what this is about to some degree. Kevin? You know, uh, Bill, I think our poll offers some clues too. And Maya, you're our, you're our expert on this issue and cover it every day, but I, and I'm pretty sure I have this right. But if you go back to the recent poll we did, you know, when you look at all voters, only 24% support an overturn of Roe v. Wade, and only 38% support that Georgia abortion law. Not not this pill law, but the other law, the what we generally call the heartbeat bill. But if you look at Republican voters, 64% of them support the Georgia heartbeat law, and uh, a, a lesser percentage, much lesser percentage support the overturn of Roe. But in the end, this is a bill designed to speak right to that base in primary season. And that's really what it is, right, Maya? I mean, the, the numbers in a general election make no sense, but in a primary election make total sense. Um, and yet, uh, Adam, these are uh, uh, people like Bruce Thompson are if, assuming they win their he wins his primary. Uh, he's going to have to face the music with general election voters. And as Kevin points out, his poll, the AJC's poll and most polls show that a uh, majority of people in the state don't uh, support continuing to restrict uh, continued restrictions on abortion or more restrictions on abortion. Yeah, I'm not familiar with with that representative or that lawmaker's district, but my guess is is it's probably one of those things. If he wins the primary, then he wins the election. Uh, so, yeah, but he's uh, running for labor commissioner, so uh, you know, okay. he's got a he's statewide state race to take on. That's yeah, okay. Well, That's we, okay. Well, well, we could get we could talk about down ticket voting then if we uh, want to talk about labor commissioner. But yeah, that's 
you're right. Okay. Um, Maya, is, have you picked up anything to, as we finish this subject that suggests to you that this is going to get less of, of a welcome, assuming it passes the full Senate, uh, where the House stands on this bill? Um, yeah, I think the the general idea is that, you know, what's been mentioned earlier, folks want to wait and see what happens with um, our uh, six-week abortion ban here uh, based on what happens in Mississippi. And there hadn't been um, – there hasn't been a – desire to put any more restrictions in place. And, you know, I often say 2019 was kind of, I think perfect storm is probably not the right term, but there were a lot of factors that happened at once that got that bill to the floor, including, you know, some controversy around David Ralston. Um, At the time, if you remember, he was in in trouble for um, using legislative leave to delay a lot of um, his criminal defense cases. So I think, you know, the timing of that kind of is what pushed our 2019 law across the finish line. I don't know that we have that this year. And this is an election year. And like has also been mentioned, um, Speaker Ralston typically likes to stay away from the overly controversial issues in election years because mm-hmm. all he cares about is maintaining his majority in the House. Yeah, right. Exactly. We'll see how that goes forward. Um, Maya, as long as the ball's in your court, let me ask you about a different matter that relates to the elections. Um, an organization called Look Ahead America, which styles itself as a conservative Christian voter mobilization group, has announced that it is going to, and another organization called Turning Point Faith, they've announced that they are going to push counties and rural areas of the state to uh, open polls on Sundays to turn out Christian conservatives uh, to vote. Of course, based on the longstanding uh, souls to the polls efforts that black churches have made for uh, some time. Um, what's, of course, interesting about that, among other things, is that we thought for a while when SB 202 was being debated, there might be an effort to shut down Sunday voting altogether. It certainly strikes me that it makes sense for an organization uh, like these organizations to want to mobilize rural white Christian voters. Yes. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think a lot of these um areas of the state don't always have, you know, Sunday voting has been optional. So a lot of these rural parts of the state don't offer Sunday voting. And so there's this push to get Sunday voting um, available in these counties so that they can load up buses and take congregants to uh, the polls from church. Um, I think it's interesting they're calling it patriotic souls to the polls. Yeah, patriotic which, souls which to the polls. makes me wonder if the other souls are not patriotic, but that's probably neither here nor there. Um, I, yeah, it, it's definitely interesting, and it, it, it strikes a lot like um, a lot of the Republicans who voted against um, the infrastructure bill who are now going to their local uh, constituents saying, like, look, all this money is coming and we're going to fix these bridges now, even though I voted against it. So it's interesting that the Republican uh, desire in the beginning was to get rid of Sunday voting. And now they're saying, well, now that we have it, let's uh, let's make the best of it for our voters. 
um, Chuck, you know, it is interesting to see Republican-oriented organizations uh, trying to mobilize voters. They obviously could watch what happened with Stacey Abrams and a fair fight and her work in 2018 and then in 2020 in turning out voters in uh, much bigger numbers. And now you've got these groups, these Christian conservative groups, plus Kelly Leffler's effort to register and motivate Republicans to turn out to the polls. Um, and I think what's interesting about that, Chuck, is it means Republicans are not looking at SB 202 the way some critics look at it as uh, uh, being a bill that will suppress uh, Democratic votes and therefore give them an edge. Republicans know that turnout is going to be everything in 2022. You know, and you talked about 2020 and 2018. I would argue that Republicans saw what turnout can do in January of 2021 and the Ossoff one-off victories. That was a turnout win in every aspect. And I think it makes sense. You know, I drive through rural Georgia a lot, and it makes sense that some of these rural churches that are that are white churches that they would look to try to get some of their some of their congregants to go to the polls. But, you know, if you're, say, in rural Marion County, and you've got to go almost to Buena Vista to vote, that's in 10 miles from your church, it's a little different dynamic than you're looking at when a lot of the souls to polls efforts are done in very urban communities where the church mm-hmm. and the polling precinct are in closer proximity. So, I mean, you know, there's a logistical deal here that, will be fun to watch out. It's probably going to make for some great stories over the next few months, for sure. Kevin? Yeah, well, I think that any anything that leads to more people voting is a positive, right? I mean, that's really what we all hope for, that more people vote. Um, now, um, I do think that we've, we've all written and read and reported so much about all the money being raised in all of these races. And I think it will, it remains to be seen whether I think the money that gets spent on a ground game and get, getting voters out is going to be the key this year, especially in the governor's race. And I got to believe money spent on television advertising isn't well spent because it seems like you know, every poll we look at, every everything that goes on, people are dug in on their side of the fence. And it's really going to be about who can get their voters out. Okay. Um, Kevin Riley gets the last word of the first segment of Political Rewind. I've got another one of those menus of topics that goes on endlessly. We'll just start attacking one after the other after these messages. The AJC's Maya Prabhu and Kevin Riley, Chuck Williams, WRBL-TV in Columbus, <clears throat> Adam Van Brimmer, editorial page editor of Savannah Morning News, with us uh, today. Um, Adam, I'm going to start with you, if I may. Um, the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, David Namius, yesterday gave his, his first, as Chief Justice, State of the Judiciary speech. And, and often those stories, uh, those speeches don't make much news. Uh, This one a little bit more, because what Nami has said is that the backlog of cases in judicial uh, circuits around the state has grown so tremendously large that uh, it presents a real potential crisis for many jurisdictions. 
He says this will be the main issue the judicial system of Georgia will be dealing with, not only until the rest of our society returns to more normal conditions, meaning the pandemic, of course, but for several years to come. And we're talking in many cases about significant criminal uh, cases that are waiting uh, to find a place on the docket. Adam? Yeah, this is a big crisis here in Chatham County. Uh, We elected a new district attorney in the 2020 election, and one of the first things that, that, well, not one of the first things, what she pushed for last year during the county budgeting cycle was to get enough money added to the budget using, you know, COVID relief funds so she could add a couple of prosecutors and basically do a rocket docket to try to work their way through a lot of these cases. And to put it into perspective, uh, at the point that she sat down with the county commission and asked that, we had over 50 people that had been sitting in the jail awaiting trial for over 1,000 days. So just think about that. People have been sitting in the jail for three years waiting waiting for for their day before the judge. And, you know, what the county commission ended up doing was they they gave her some money, but they gave her money and did not guarantee that it was going to stay in the budget. So what has happened is that she's gone out and tried to hire prosecutors, attorneys, but trying to hire a prosecutor when they say, yeah, well, you got this money for the next year, year and a half, but it's hard to tell if we're going to be able to continue to pay you and keep you on the payroll beyond that. So she's had a really, really hard time hiring attorneys. So, you know, it's just between the, the log jam of, of the backed up cases in the court system and then the, the difficulties in prosecuting it. And I almost guarantee you the public defender's office is having a similar issue because they don't have enough help. Uh, and that's just in Chatham County. So I can, I can only imagine what it's like statewide. Chuck, you're familiar with uh, one of the figures that Namius gave. He said that in the southwestern judicial circuit down your way, in 2019, there were 377 open felony cases. There are now more than 900. And he said in his speech that Muskogee has almost 300 serious violent felony cases pending, including more than 100 jailed defendants charged with murder. Chuck? 289 was the number at the end of the year of people awaiting uh, the seven deadlies is what they call them. But over 110 murder suspects or murder defendants are awaiting trial in Muskogee County. And I saw it boil over in court a couple of weeks ago. A mother of a victim who was uh, killed in in his car in the Pizza Hut parking lot on Buena Vista Road in Columbus. Uh, Five co-defendants have been charged in the guy's death. It was a 2018 murder. The mother went to court. They were del- they had a February trial date set. They were delaying the trial date. Again, the 10th delay of a trial date. And the mother just went off. She has been in court for hearings and other matters involving these five co-defendants 48 times in four years. She has, has clearly affected her mental and physical well-being, and we have, we're have we short one Superior Court judge down here still waiting for Governor Kemp to make an appointment, and this was a visiting judge, and the judge basically said, you will try this case, set a March date, a hard date, and he said, I don't care what happens. The DA's office better be ready to try it. And I mean, the George, the judge literally forced the hand of everybody in that courtroom that day, and he did it after hearing the mom. 
It, it, stories like that are all over the state, Bill. I mean, I, I think your listeners will remember in the fall when Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis um, was uh, highlighting this issue. And she said she basically went to the county commission and said, look, I need lots of money or you're, we're going to end up letting a couple hundred, you know, uh, well, we had a couple at that point. She had a couple hundred murder suspects unindicted. And some of them were going to end up walking out of jail. I mean, she really told a stark tale. And it's typical of all the metro Atlanta counties, Fulton obviously being the largest and the one with the um, probably the biggest demands on its justice system, but it's happening all over. Uh, Maya, there are public safety issues involved in this course, but there's another side of this as well. Uh, There are right now defendants sitting in county jails, city jails, who cannot get a court date, and clearly some of those are people who did not commit the crimes that they're accused of. You know, it it reminds us of the old saying, justice delayed is justice denied. There's that side of the story as well. Yeah, it's funny you read my mind. That's exactly what I was thinking about while um, everyone else was speaking, is that, you know, obviously it's innocent until proven guilty, and a lot of a lot of folks who are who have been arrested and indicted or are awaiting indictment have committed the crimes that they are accused of, but there are probably a great deal who haven't, and they are being held. And, you know, talking about um, mental health, you know, being held in prison, especially for something that you have or held in jail for something that you haven't done, um, really can affect someone's mental health. It makes me think of, you know, not local, but in New York and Rikers Island, Khalif Browder, who was held for, I think it was three years and most of it in solitary confinement, who after eventually was released because he was not at all guilty of what he had been arrested for, you know, ended up taking his own life. So it's, it's terrible for all parties involved because, um, you know, you're supposed to be guaranteed a right to a, a speedy trial. And, um, this pandemic has really made made that not the case. Um, all right. Uh, you know, that's one of the criticisms that's been leveled at Fonnie Willis for her uh, pursuit of Donald Trump for possible uh, uh, criminal uh, misbehavior in terms of trying to overturn the results of the Georgia election, that while she's working on that, she's got a tremendous uh, backlog of other cases Uh, to deal with. So that's in the mix in all of this here in Metro Atlanta. Um, Kevin, I want to turn to a story that we discussed on the show yesterday, but there's been an update to it that's, um, I think, pretty interesting. Um, And I I, I know it's going to take a moment to set this up, and then I want to get you to comment on it. Um, Steve Jones, federal district judge in Atlanta, has got a case right now the litigants are suing uh, uh, to uh, block the um, uh, uh, the election, uh, uh, the redistricting of congressional uh, districts across the state. Um, and uh, this is happening while Alabama has had a case that they've been dealing with as well. The Alabama... Uh, 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 lines that were drawn, according to uh, voting rights groups there, have said they, uh, in fact, dilute the vote of black uh, citizens of the state. 
a federal district panel in Alabama said that's true. That did happen. We want the state to redraw the lines to give instead of one district that's a majority black is two districts that are majority black. Okay. But the U.S. Supreme Court said can't do it. The primary election in Alabama is too soon. This would confuse the picture completely. Because of that, Steve Jones, two days ago, said in the case here, I'm not sure that what the Supreme Court just said doesn't mean I've got to stop looking at this case right now uh, if, if, in fact, the Supreme Court's going to say it's too close to our primary election, which is in May. But yesterday, Jones said something completely different. He said, I may decide we've got to delay the primary uh, so we, if this case turns out to be valid, that we have to redraw Georgia District. I, I apologize. I know that was a lot, but I thought the setup was necessary. Yeah, and it's a confusing legal case, and uh, you're not a lawyer, right? None of us are, so it's a, it can be a little bit hard to summarize. But the bottom line is that we all knew that this map, this Georgia map, was going to be challenged, and we all knew it would end up in court, really, from the beginning of the process. Um, and now there are questions of, well, can you get this fixed before the primary if, in fact, the case goes forward? Here's what I would say is when the Supreme Court made its ruling, I, I think that probably gave the people who drew the maps in Georgia a lot of confidence that, you know, in the end, this is in federal court. If he if the judge here does something, it's going to end up making its way through the courts. And, and as you know, in the dissent from the um, Supreme Court decision, the liberal block of the court was just scathing. In its, in its criticism of the decision. It wasn't really a decision. They just agreed to let the Alabama uh, law stand. And they, they really pilloried their fellow justices for saying, well, this will screw up the timing. Uh, the argument being, well, you mean that it's okay to go forward with uh, when there are questions about the fairness of the map? And apparently that's the decision. So I, I mean, I don't want to sound cynical, but I don't understand. I don't believe that what happened in Georgia will be any different than what's happening in Alabama. Well, but Adam, uh, Steve Jones does raise the issue that if that we'll, we'll see what happens. Jones, Jones could be, you know, that, that, that he could decide the primaries here have to be delayed if he rules that the maps need to be redrawn. And then we'd see what happens when it goes to the Supreme Court for quick uh, a decision. And here's my question on that is, OK, let's say it does get kicked up and they do end up having to tweak the maps. We really think they're going to have those ready <laughs> in time. I mean, you know, when they talked about the redistricting maps here locally with the school board and the county commission, there was talk of, well, if we don't get it in the legislature by such and such a point, it's not going to get approved, and therefore we'll just use the old maps for the May election. So I'm somewhat unclear about what all the ramifications are as you work your way up up the chain. You know, at, at the U.S. congressional level is that it is that an option uh if the supreme court decides to you know side and it follows the the lower court decision and the maps have to come back how does that process work there's just a lot of there's a lot of unknowns here that make it really really hard to, to offer a uh, intelligent response chuck bill i'm gonna throw it back to you in the form of a question can you imagine if this primary particularly the contentious side of the Republican part of this, gets thrown back or delayed. Can you imagine the confusion it's caused? And then you take a place like Columbus, where the municipal elections and school board elections are tied to that primary date. 
I mean, we are talking about, I mean, this election cycle is confusing enough. Can you imagine what this does to it if this happens? (laughs) Maya? (laughs) But I will say, you know, granted, um, elector or congressional maps don't carry the same weight of a pandemic, but two years ago, elections were delayed by about a month. So there, there is, I guess we can call that precedent for, you know, the folks in charge making a decision that we need to wait to head to the polls. Um, I will say that the idea of going back into a redistricting session is not my favorite, um, but uh, <laughs> as someone who sat through it in November, um, but, you know, we'll just have to see how it all plays out. Yeah. Um, before we get to a break, well, let me just say, I think Republicans who, who of course, hold the majority in the state house believe that their maps are going to pass muster. They're not terribly concerned. They think they've drawn fair maps. But, of course, that's what Steve Jones is looking at right now. So we'll watch how that unfolds. Uh, let's get to, to our final break of the show. And as we do, let me say, I realize, uh, I say to our listeners, I'm sorry that I may not have put that whole thing together for you in the best light possible because it is, as Kevin Riley points out, a kind of a complicated legal case. So bear with me. Uh, we'll come back with more news uh, after these messages. Kevin Riley, I want to turn to a story that has not gotten a lot of attention uh, on, on, in, in, in national news, and for that matter, here in Georgia either. But it has to do with a nomination that President Biden made of Deborah Lipstadt, the Emory University professor who is perhaps the most authoritative Holocaust scholar in, literally in, in the world. Uh, the president wanted to appoint her. He's, he's nominated her to be a special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, which we know is on the rise uh, in this country, a- along with uh, crimes against other minorities in the country as well. Um, but her nomination has been held up largely because Senator Ron Johnson uh, is, continues to be hurt by a tweet that she made quite a while ago criticizing him over something that has nothing to do with the reason she's being nominated at all. And this thing has been held up for months and months and months, and it's still not clear whether it's going to go through. I'm interested in your thoughts on that, Kevin. Well, it is a bit of a bizarre story. You know, Johnson is a Wisconsin Republican who, um, let's just say, you might call him a little quirky um, if you were going to be kind to him. Um, and what he what he said, at, and this is after the June, January 6th uh, attack at the Capitol, he said, I knew those were people who loved this country that truly respect law enforcement would never do anything to break the law. So I wasn't concerned. And you know, of course, her response to that was to characterize it, as, you know, in other statements he made uh, as really as white supremacy. And, and he is still angry about it. And a uh, senator on a committee has a lot of power. And so the whole thing is hung up in a way that I hope uh, as light gets shined on it, it becomes clear that 
there's no reason for this to be hung up. It's an important position and something that needs to happen. Well, it's also, Adam, we're at a moment in our history uh, where uh, uh, crimes against um, uh, minorities, whether they're Jews, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, uh, are, are on the rise. And so here's one effort by the Biden administration to address at least one aspect of this, Adam. Yeah, this speaks to the tone deafness that we've seen in Washington for several years now, and it just it doesn't seem to be getting any, any better. Some of the some of the things that are putting out there by people who are elected is it's it's reprehensible. I don't think there's any other word to describe it. And, and here's just here's one more example. Uh, I guess that it must play with a certain constituency. I assume that that Mr. Johnson is is going to face some. Uh, going to face some challengers in the next election, but as as we all know, once you get in there, it's it's hard a lot of times to get the incumbents out, and I think that empowers them to to say and do things uh, that are, you know, not in keeping with with just being a good a good leader, and I think this speaks to that. Maya, and I I also find you know it's interesting how many of these different scenarios in Washington come down to one or two people just completely grinding things to a halt. Um, You know, it's sad, um, frustrating, I think, for Americans at large that one person in this instance can take a, a personal offense to him and just kind of throw this whole thing and drag it out for months. And I think you know, like we just said, um, you know, it's indicative of, of where the country is today, especially in, in Washington, and um, the growing frustration among people and uh, resentment for um, a lot of those elected officials. Chuck, just again, to put this in a larger context, um, Deborah Lipstadt is only one of hundreds of Biden nominees who are stuck in the confirmation process the uh, New York Times reported last month that there are hundreds of nominees stuck because of, the Times says, partisan dysfunction or personal peak. During his first year in office, only 41 percent of Mr. Biden's nominees cleared the Senate, um, compared to 57 percent of Trump's first year nominees, 69 percent of Obama's and 75 percent of George W. Uh, bushes. So here we go again, partisan gridlock at its worst. We well, you know it's of particular interest down this way because one of the people stuck in that gridlock is our very own Calvin Smiley. Uh, Dean Smiley, the dean of the General Assembly, Columbus legislator, um, has been nominated by President Biden to be the ambassador to the Dominican Republic. And Calvin's nomination is one of the ones that's hung up. So, you know, it hits close to home in a lot of ways. Bill, I'm going to jog the memory of uh, the listeners. Um, Ron Johnson is the guy who recommended gargling mouthwash to uh, treat yourself for the coronavirus. And then you'll recall that Listerine, the company, issued a public statement saying that, no, their product was not created and would not uh was not proven to kill the coronavirus. That sort of, uh, I think, helps you understand where this guy is on some things. There, there I, to close this part of the conversation, 
there are a lot of us, a lot of people who have followed Deborah Lipstadt's career for decades and uh, know that she's been a relentless uh, crusader in terms of making sure the world does not forget the, uh, the Holocaust and, um, and, and does not forget the lessons that we've needed to learn uh, since then. So we'll see how that confirmation hearing goes forward. Um, we got time for one more story, um, which I think is pretty interesting, uh, Chuck. Uh, the Republican Governors Association, for uh, the first time ever, is financing a TV ad during a primary campaign, a GOP primary campaign, supporting Brian Kemp over David Perdue. Now that, and they're putting something like $500,000 into this effort. Chuck, it's never happened before, uh, but it tells us something about what how heated this battle is going to be between uh, uh, Kemp and and uh, Purdue and the Trump faction of the party uh, and Republicans who are hoping for some semblance of normality beyond Trump. You know, what it speaks to to me, Bill, is um, as a TV guy, hey, another ad, another person buying an ad, not a bad deal. But if you look at this, it speaks to the fact that people other than Georgia Republican primary voters are going to be weighing in. People from across the country are going to be weighing in on Kemp Purdue and, you know, weighing in both with opinions, op-eds, but also with with dollars and, and highly focused campaigns, ad campaigns that hit these voters. And it just, you know, it further shows that this isn't about, this is not only about Georgia. I want to be careful I said that. It's not only about Georgia. It's about a lot of other things, too, and that go far beyond the borders of our state. Adam, let me give you the last word on this. Yes, you look at the the financing numbers that just came in, and obviously Kemp was was far ahead of Purdue, but as somebody pointed out to me, well, Trump really hasn't started pouring his money and the full force of of what he has behind him uh, into behind Purdue yet. And so I I look at this by the Republican Governors Association as a little bit of a preemptive strike to try to counter that. As, as this race really keys up. All right. Um, Adam Van Brimmer, Savannah Morning News, thank you for being here for today's show. Uh, Maya Prabhu, uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy uh, work down at the Capitol for being with us. Chuck Williams, you as well. And Kevin Riley, always glad to have you as my partner on the Thursday show. A couple quick notes before we leave you. Uh, the newest edition of the Political Rewind newsletter is now out. If you're not a subscriber, We'd love to have you join us. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletters. And uh, one of the stories you'll see this week is how the National Butterfly Center, what an innocent kind of lovely place that seems to be, is now the target of right-wing extremist anger. Are they running a child sex ring? Of course they're not, but you would probably really like to see this story if you read our newsletter. Thanks so much for joining us for today's show. Till tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. I think you ought to wear a mask. Do what you want to. Get boosted. See you all tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.